In this episode, I'm joined by Amalia Rubin, internationally known singer, Buddhist practitioner, eight-language polyglot, and scholar, currently conducting her PhD research at the University of Leeds on Gesar as an ongoing mode of reality in the lives of modern Tibetan youths in Eastern Tibet. In this interview, Amalia reveals her unusual upbringing and subsequent life of adventure, intensive language immersion, life and work throughout Asia, and encounters with high lamas, including an ongoing friendship with the 17th Karmapa. We learn about Amalia's research interests, including the similarities between the modern revivals of traditional shamanism in Mongolia and the Gesar Ling traditions of Eastern Tibet, shamanic healing practices of the steppes, and the Babdrung trance bards of the Gesar tradition. Amalia also discusses her special relationship with the Yelpa Kagyutana Monastery and how she unintentionally became an internationally renowned singer and performer. So without further ado, Amalia Rubin. Amalia Rubin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're currently conducting your PhD research at the University of Leeds on, yes. to quote you, Gesar as an ongoing mode of reality in the lives of modern Tibetan youths in Eastern Tibet. Yes. And I'd love to ask you about that. But first, I'm curious, how was it you first became interested in these topics? In our correspondence leading up to this interview, you told me that you come from a weird family. Oh, very, very weird family. Um, I once used a traditional Jewish halachic law to prove that my father might be a demon, but we love him anyway. Um, we got a rabbi's thumbs up on that one. But no, I, I'm from a family that loves humor, loves thinking about things creatively, um, loves looking at international stuff. And, um, but when I was about two months old, my parents realized that the tiny house that they had when they had only one child was no longer suitable when they had two. And they found a house in a beautiful little town in upstate New York. But back then, and I'm not gonna date myself saying exactly when that was, if you weren't in a big city, um, the only religious buildings you had would be a few churches and maybe, maybe, maybe a synagogue. Um, but a Hindu temple, a mosque, a Buddhist temple, uh, a Sikh Gurudwara, you didn't have those back then. They would inevitably be run out of someone's house, someone who had a spare bedroom or could convert the basement. And that was our neighbors. Our neighbors ran the local Dharma center. And in fact, before I was born, the 16th Karmapa had come and stayed in their home during his visit to America. Because back then when high lamas came to visit, they didn't stay at the Ritz, you know, because nobody knew who they were. Uh, they stayed in the guest room of the local Dharma center. So unbeknownst to my family, we were moving in next door to the local Buddhist temple. And luckily also some of the nicest, funniest neighbors you could possibly ask for. We joke that we, instead of having two houses, we just had one house with a very breezy hallway where it occasionally rained. Um, so I grew up with this, you know, fun and, and weird family. Uh, and then this influence from next door and that just got the ball rolling from a very young age. Um, you know, my parents, and again, this is stuff that's vaguely normal now, but a few decades ago was not. Uh, my parents made sure that my brother and I knew how to use chopsticks by the age of three because they didn't want their toddlers embarrassing them when we went out for legit Hong Kong dim sum. Uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, and 
And they were also very welcoming to have us learn about different cultures. So when our neighbors were having meditation or a llama visiting, uh, we were, you know, my parents were absolutely encouraging that we go and join for meditation or meet this llama or in my case, learn Tibetan script uh, or whatever. They were super welcoming to that. And that kind of just got everything started. I think in part because when you're a little kid uh, and your neighbors have this house full of bright and colorful paintings and there's these cool dudes who come over. You're not sure why they're wearing red skirts, but they're cool dudes. Um, and you're a little kid. This is just super attractive. It also helped that my dad is Buddhist, so he was very, uh, very encouraging of me to do this. So even though I was raised in a Jewish home, I was very strongly and openly encouraged to look into this as much as I wanted to. And I guess it just kind of snowballed from there. That was the starting point. I'm curious about the intersection of your Jewish upbringing and the Buddhist side of things. It's, it's of course, it's, it's a well-known marriage, a very successful marriage, it seems, generally to be the case. Well, I thought when you said a very good marriage, I thought you were talking about my parents because they've been together for 40 years and are still bizarrely romantic. Um, I, I once came home from a vacation to find that as what I hope and pray was a joke, my mother had tied my father's necktie on the door so I couldn't come in uh, of the house. <laughs> but... Um, so it's a couple of things, you know, my mom was raised in a fairly traditional but not orthodox home. She was raised in a, a fairly like a kosher style home. They lit Shabbat candles every Friday night. My grandma did that in, until the very end of her life. Um, the boys all got bar mitzvahs. The girls did not get bar mitzvah. That's a very new phenomenon. Uh, so a fairly traditional home. My father grew up in a very culturally Jewish hardcore atheist home with some unspoken Buddhist leanings. Um, and it actually turns out that my father's great grandfather was Mongolian and everyone in the family basically admits that he was definitely not a Jew and was almost certainly Buddhist and, and kind of, while he never said the words probably was putting some of the philosophy <laughs> into the kids, uh, which was surprisingly common back then, actually. Uh, quite a lot of Russian Jews have some Mongolians in the family uh, from back then. Um, and so actually quite a few members of my father's family are Buddhist. My father got uh, very formally interested in Buddhism in college and uh, just pursued that and stuck with it. Um, and I'm very lucky in that both of my parents are very encouraging. Uh, my father spoke at my bat mitzvah. My mother goes with him to the Buddhist temple. Oh, fascinating. And for me, I don't see them as too philosophically um, clashing, but there's of course debate on that. <laughs> Anything interesting in that debate? Well, you know, it just really depends who you talk to and what branch of Judaism they come from primarily. Uh, because Buddhism doesn't really go into questions about the creation of the universe and a higher power and things like that. Um, a lot of the more spiritual branches of Judaism, such as Hasidism, uh, have a view of God that is very similar to the Buddhist idea of emptiness. So those of us who grew up in a non-Orthodox environment, but with uh, 
the Hasidic style of Judaism as their philosophy, find this to be a good match. But for a lot of uh, more Orthodox Jews, including most of the Hasidim, uh, they viewed Judaism as sort of a self-contained complete system. So why would you add in something else when everything exists within it? Um, but it's very much up to the individual person. And I think this is one of many reasons why Judaism and Buddhism have come together so well. The other reason is actually a very sad one, which is that um, especially after the Holocaust, uh, there was a very strong movement of sort of a more secular form of Judaism. And I think this was in part the push to assimilate um, because being different had now been very actively proven to be dangerous. So we wanted something more casual, the same way that a lot of Christians will go to church on Sunday, but it's not something that they're concerned about 24 seven. Um, but what ended up coming from that was a form of Judaism that stripped away a lot of the spiritualism, a lot of the philosophy. Uh, Judaism, unbeknownst to many people, is in fact an esoteric religion uh, that does have many closed sections. Um, and all of that was stripped away. So we ended up with something that wasn't very spiritually fulfilling for a lot of people. And as a result, you ended up with a lot of people who grew up in Jewish homes, very proud of being Jewish culturally, who um, were not spiritually fulfilled and uh, turned to things that were spiritually fulfilling, but not necessarily dogmatically based because Judaism is very strong on question everything. The joke is that when God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, the Jewish people responded, do you accept constructive criticism? Um, <laughs> and so, which we still do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so what ended up happening was a lot of Jewish people feeling that there was no spiritual depth, depth to Judaism. It was just another religion with a God giving you commandments, uh, which is really giving Judaism the short end of the stick. Um, and as someone who loves Buddhism and isn't saying, oh, you know, please leave Buddhism, I do think that we owe it to ourselves to look into the spiritual side of Judaism, uh, which is very in-depth, which has meditation practices, esotericism, I mean, all sorts of in-depth philosophy that will blow your mind, but most of us never learned any of it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious then about that time. Did you meet any interesting lamas? Do you have any interesting stories from that time period? Were you aware of the spiritual aspect or were you absorbing it more on a sort of cultural level? Um, I think I was just kind of absorbing everything by osmosis, you know, just by being around it. I did meet some great lamas. Uh, I met Paisito Rinpoche at that time. I met Sochin Pono Rinpoche at that time. Um, I met Kabbalistin Janso at that time and many others, Bardo Toko Rinpoche, who I went on to create a wonderful ongoing relationship that I continue to this day. Um, you know, I still go to him for spiritual advice. And uh, my neighbors were always willing to lend me books. So I did pick up some of the spiritual stuff and the cultural stuff at the same time, um, such as a love of Tibetan food. <laughs> but there were always some very funny experiences because I didn't necessarily understand how this was. And I came from a very anti-hierarchical Jewish family. So for example, um, 
you know, there were wild strawberries that used to grow in the backyard and there would be these llamas visiting that I later would find out were very important llamas. And I had no idea what that even meant at the time, but I would just pick wild strawberries in the backyard and then run over and just split them between me and the llamas. <laughs> or uh, apparently once I came over with a butterfly on my hand and just handed it to the Sujumbuche and everyone thought it was this hugely auspicious thing. And to, I don't actually remember this. Everyone else tells me about it because I was an eight-year-old who was gonna show anybody this butterfly that was on my hand. Uh, I didn't care if they were the Pope. So to everyone else, it was this beautifully auspicious moment of this child spontaneously running up to this very high llama and presenting this butterfly. And to me, it was, I've got a butterfly, dude. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I also did get a chance to read books and learn about meditation. And since Tibetan Buddhism is meant to be a very visually, visually educative system, because traditionally a lot of people were illiterate, I learned about it in what in hindsight was a very traditional way. I'd go up to a tanka and I'd go, who's this person and why are they covered in flames? And they'd say, well, he's actually surrounded by flames and this is Mahakala and, 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 and. Uh, so in hindsight, I actually learned it in a very traditional way. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And you later went on to study uh, formulate university Tibetan and Chinese. So is that the next step in the story or is something before that? Um, I mean, I guess that's kind of the next step. Uh, I mean, if we want to talk about when I kind of formally came into Buddhism, I was about 14 at that point. Uh, so that was I'd already decided that I was a Buddhist many years before, probably around the age of nine. Uh, but I, you know, formally took refuge at that point. But yeah, I knew this was something I wanted to study. And my high school graduation present from my parents who realized that I was obsessed and I wasn't going to be deterred was the University of Virginia Summer Language Program in Tibetan, uh, which is this hardcore Tibetan language program. You go in on the first day, you don't speak a word of Tibetan, you don't know the alphabet, and the teacher walks up to the board and goes, Yeah, look And I think two students quit in the first two days because it's so terrifying. But if you get through that program, you have a solid foundation of Tibetan in just two months. So I did that. And um, that opened a million doors because not being able to speak Tibetan had been this massive frustration to me, you know, when I was about 16, some lamas came with one of the rinboches and they just, there were too many people to stay in the neighbor's house. So we had these Tibetan lamas staying in my house with no interpreter. Um, still friends with those lamas to this day. Uh, but yeah, so that was kind of, I decided I really needed to learn Tibetan. And then, then yeah, I, I started the formal study in college once I'd learned Tibetan, gotten over that frustration. <laughs> So yeah, but I guess we could start on college now. Mm, great, let's go for it. University of Virginia, of course, very famous. Central oh yeah. Of studies made famous, probably most famous uh, academic, at least in the early days there, Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins. Yeah, mm. although he was he, retired by the time I got there. Yeah, I was gonna ask, I guess, I, I guess he would have been retired by then, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, how was that? Tell me about your university time. Well, I actually went to university at the University of Buffalo. I only did the summer program uh, at the University of Virginia. University of Buffalo then. Yeah. Uh, can you say something about that time and, and learning Tibetan and also Chinese remarkably, two of the eight languages that you speak? Yes. Um, well, uh, the University of Buffalo, amazing school. 
Um, what had happened was that I actually started at a much smaller college because I'd grown up in a small town. I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to expand. And I, I'm sorry, I'm dropping this bombshell in there. So I took a year after high school because I graduated young and I went to Thailand as an exchange student and they dropped me in the middle of nowhere in Northeastern Thailand on the Cambodian and Lao border uh, with a family who spoke no English. That was my first experience with immersive learning. Um, and it was just an amazing experience that we can come back to if you want. But uh, when I finished that, suddenly uh, small town life and uh, being afraid of going out into the big city, that fear was gone. So I switched from a smaller school to a much, much bigger school, SUNY Buffalo, which has an amazing Asian studies program. They did not offer Tibetan. So I thought, okay, well, I've always wanted to learn Chinese. Um, and there were some you know, great Chinese teachers there. So I got to do some work with that and great Asian studies teachers. And eventually we had a teacher who did some classical Tibetan. And although they didn't have Tibetan studies, they were amazing about letting me do independent studies to uh, fill in the gaps. So in a way, I kind of built my own major, which was absolutely fantastic. And I had a great time there. I loved it. Uh, yeah, it was just an amazing experience. And it was during that time that I did a semester abroad in India to also improve my Tibetan. I went to Sara College at that time. And uh, I, again, got what everyone else would consider unlucky. I would consider super lucky, which was they had arranged um, us to have roommates in the dormitories. And one of the roommates had become ill with tuberculosis. She was fine, but with the potential of con uh, contagion, obviously she could no longer be a roommate. But they'd chosen roommates who spoke some English because no one in the program other than me and one other kid spoke any Tibetan. And so all of a sudden they had to get an alternate roommate and the alternate roommate was this nun from Ando who didn't speak a lick of English. And they're like, oh, Amalia, we're so sorry. She doesn't speak any English at all. And I'm like, this is the best. I was thrilled. I was like, this is ideal. I have a roommate who doesn't speak any English. I don't have any excuses. I've got to speak perfect Tibetan. So um, I came out of that program speaking significantly more Tibetan than most of the other students. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I went back to SUNY Buffalo, did some independent studies on Tibetan debate um, and Tibetan language and uh, graduated very, very happily from there. I still love that school. Right, yeah, fascinating. And uh, next up, your master's. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about, that's a very fascinating topic that you you, you covered there. Did that come immediately after your undergraduate? No, and I, I strongly recommend to any student considering doing an upper degree, take at least two years between your bachelor's and your master's or your PhD. Um, do some work out in the world, ideally that relates to your studies as closely as you can, because that is gonna help you figure out what you wanna do. And you can just, this is one thing that a lot of us noticed, you could immediately tell the difference between the students who'd gone directly into their masters and the students who hadn't um, in terms of real world uh, application. So I strongly recommend everyone take some time. I took three years. Um, during which I lived and worked in northern India. And um, 
so then I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, which I chose solely because my brother was living nearby and he said it was a good school. Um, and again, found myself in a situation where I was at this wonderful school with wonderful programs and nothing to do with Tibetan studies. And I knew I wanted to do something related to King Gesar and development that used traditional cultural solutions instead of trying to apply Western solutions to non-Western problems. Um, so I was doing research on Gesar when I was there and my teachers are amazing. They let me do a lot of stuff by um, independent study again. And uh, then one summer there was the conference, International Association of Tibetan Studies conference was held in Mongolia. And I decided to apply and I had one Mongolian friend who said, you know, save yourself some money, don't stay at a hotel, stay with me. I thought that was great. And I went to Mongolia. And when I was there living with this family that again spoke no English, are we noticing a pattern? Uh, what ended up happening was I have extremely severe migraines and my friend became very concerned and asked if I have any medicine. And I explained that, no, there was really nothing to do about this. You know, I'd, I'd done the whole MRIs, the whole shebang. And he said, well, I'm taking you to see my shaman. And I was like, okay, well, I've always wanted to meet a Mongolian shaman. Didn't necessarily want to meet it in this context, but sure. turns out I'd already met him on my first day there when we'd uh, slaughtered a sheep in breeding. Uh, turns out two shamans were just hanging out there. And uh, it was an amazing experience to meet this Mongolian shaman and talking to these shamans outside of the shamanic context, because I'd already met them just having dinner and stuff. I realized that there had been a really interesting thing going on in Mongolia, which was this revival of shamanism since the end of the socialist period. Meanwhile, what we were seeing in Eastern Tibet was a revival of Gesar traditions since the end of the Cultural Revolution. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is an amazing parallel study. So instead of looking at Gesar, I decided to look at both Gesar and Mongolian shamanism as examples of how societies revive indigenous traditions after a period of severe cultural repression. Um, and so I ended up traveling to Mongolia several more times, living with shamans, acting as shamans attendants, um, and writing my thesis on a topic that not even my advisors knew about. They used to joke that I could just be making it all up. So I had to make sure the bibliography was especially thorough. Um, and it was an absolute thrill to get to do that for my masters. What was the outcome of the meeting with the shaman about your headaches, your migraines? Um, I got relief for about six months. And what was the means of treatment? I definitely got beaten with a stick covered in little metal jingle cones a lot. Uh, I could not sleep on my back for several days. Gosh. <laughs> so, and was there a, um, a cause that was attributed to your migraines? Um, it was believed to be a, a spiritual cause, but, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to go into too many details on that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, very interesting. And, and you became fluent also in Mongolian. Uh, Not at that time, but when I finished my master's, I decided this topic was severely understudied. And so I thought, you know what, 
I'm certified as an English teacher. I can get a job in Mongolia and then I can spend my time learning more about this. So I moved to Mongolia for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So I'm very curious about several things you've mentioned there, what you were doing in Northern India for three years for one. And also- I grazed over that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we should talk about that. And also I'm curious about the similarities and differences between the revival of shamanism in Mongolia and the Gesar tradition in Eastern Tibet I'm very curious what you observed there in in your studies. Perhaps we'll start with your three years in India and then circle back to that. Yeah, I went to India for quite a few reasons, but uh, two of them were linguistic and spiritual. I definitely wanted to continue improving my Tibetan. um, And at the time, India was the best place to do that for me. So I got a job again working through my connections at Sarah College. Uh, They were looking for someone who could help them do some editing of some films that they were going to dub into Tibetan. And so that was a a wonderful job, which I really enjoyed and helping them create better resources. Some of the resources we created were in English, some were in Tibetan. So I really had to ramp up my Tibetan to be able to do this. So that was just from a a linguistic and educational standpoint, absolute thrill to be there and work on that for three years. Um, From a spiritual standpoint, um, His Holiness Kamapa was residing at Gupta Monastery at that time. So I managed to get an apartment, well, not so much managed to get a friend found me an apartment fairly near there so the Karmapa was technically my neighbor for uh, two and a half of those three years um and I developed a a spiritual uh relationship with him I I felt a strong connection to the Karmapa since I was a child with my neighbors and they'd gotten a photo of him when he was enthroned at Serpu I was six at the time and I saw this photo and I was like I don't know who that is but I gotta meet him and so eventually I did and uh, so we developed a a spiritual uh, connection and relationship from that point so from a spiritual standpoint uh, it was very good to be there it was for numerous reasons that I won't go into a very very tough and difficult time in my life I'd recently been through some major traumas and I was trying to work through those um and uh, so he was was very understanding and really uh, proved in so many ways to be an amazing and very unconventional teacher. And I needed unconventional at that time. I would not have done well with someone who said, oh, just do 100,000 Tara mantras. Oh, you should do Chenrezig practice. Um, that would not have worked for me. I, it was at a time where due to this trauma, I was very sensitive to any sort of authority and um tibetan buddhism being very hierarchical that's not ideal however uh he was an amazingly compassionate teacher who um recognized what was going on and we talked about it very openly and created a a very casual way to discuss things um and to work with me and it was it was really great So I think that that was one of the biggest things I got out of my three years there was being able to spiritually work with him and develop in that way. And then years later, discover that he had a long game planned all along, (laughs) as all the good llamas do. (laughs) Um, He knew I'd be into Gessar more than I did. And I was very sneaky, leaving little hints along the way. (laughs) and uh so um which ended up coming to fruition very much later 
but planting little seeds of about Gesar and Gesar practice along the way uh, for when the time would be right for me to follow things a little bit more conventionally. But yeah, that was pretty much what I did there. And I'm, I'm grateful for that time. Wow. This 17th Kamapa, of course, very high Lama. And um, what was the first meeting like? Are there any anecdotes you can tell that show us a bit the unconventional relationship that you had? I expect your language skills made communication really quite natural and easy. Perhaps there are some stories there you can tell us. Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, the first meeting was very unexpected. It was actually when I was on that study abroad trip a few years earlier. And um, the Tibetan students at Sara College knew that I could sing in Tibetan and play Damnian. And a couple of them came up to me and said, oh, you know, Losar's in a couple of weeks. Losar's the Tibetan New Year, of course. And uh, we've been asked to sing at this new nunnery that's opening in Tolokpur. Um, would you be willing to do a solo of this one song on Damnian? And it was my favorite song. And I said, oh, absolutely. That sounds awesome. And just like absolutely passing it by, the student goes, cool, yeah, the Karmapa is going to be the guest of honor and just walks out of the room. And I stood there in shock for a minute. This person that I wanted to meet since I was six, you know, I've been developing devotion to since I was six. Oh yeah, cool. The Karmapa is going to be guest of honor. And you're singing a solo for him. Uh, So that was how I met him was... (laughs) performing music for him and then getting to offer a kata and that was quite an experience and a little bit terrifying but also I think very appropriate for me um and he's he's very serious but he is very conventional he also likes to joke so one of the very unconventional things was that I used to go to him and I felt like, okay, so I have to ask him what practice I should be doing because that's just that's just what you do, right? That's what you're supposed to do. And honestly, at that point in my life, I had a lot of stuff going on, both with school and with work and emotionally. And so I'd go to him and be like, you know, what practice should I be doing? And he just looks at me and goes, no. Like what? He goes, no, don't, don't do any practice right now. Just keep working on your music. He's like, Okay, let me, let me say this to you again. Practice later, CDs now. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. He's talking to me like a five-year-old because I am not getting the point, which is very unconventional, but it was in fact the right thing. It was very much the right choice for what I needed in my life at that time. And the fact that the practice that we'd later learn I should be doing was not available to me at that time. So I would have created commitments to practices that would have been taking up my time, but weren't actually the appropriate practice for me. Uh, So he was thinking long game. I was thinking short game. he also has an amazing sense of humor. So um, there was one time that I was there with a, a student who came on the same program a few years later. And to make some extra cash, I would do some translation help and TAing for these students. And uh, we got an interview. We got a couple interviews with him. And this student was so nervous because, oh my gosh, we're interviewing His Holiness, the 17th Gyalwang Karmapa. And of course we walk in and we're sitting on the floor and he's sitting on a sofa. So he's above us. And the student had a notebook and he was so nervous that his nose is just right in the notebook. And so he's reading this question from the notebook and Selena's come up and just starts leaning over. 
until his head and the student's head are just right next to each other. And the student goes, okay, so for this first question, I'm, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> and he does, Selena's come up and just starts cracking up, which was his way of, you know, saying like, stop being nervous. Like, just be normal for a minute, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's an unconventional teacher, but one who finds the ways that are right for people. For most of the students who went in and asked what practice should I be doing, he'd be like, oh, you know, work on Tara or, oh, work on Mitukpa or, or whatever. But um, he is very much not bound by the necessary traditional boundaries. He does try to work with students very much one-on-one -on -one by their personal needs, which is excellent. And um, I think should be more common. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And what was the practice that you ended up discovering was the right one for you? Presumably, guess guess are. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, which is essentially not available other than a very few tiny, tiny areas. It's essentially not available outside of Tibet. Yeah, well, I'd be very, I'm very interested in what, what that entails. Yeah. But Okay, great. And so your master's, I'm curious then what you noticed when you compared the shamanic revival in Mongolia to the revival of the, of the Gesar traditions in Eastern Tibet. What did you uh, observe there of interest? Well, uh, obviously I ended up writing over a hundred pages on this, so I'm gonna have to give you a very abridged version. But the most interesting one I found was a parallel of what we could call involuntary revivals. Um, so a lot of times we see voluntary revival where people decide they're going to speak their language more, they decide they're going to wear traditional clothing more. But in these cases, and this is just a microcosm of something all over the world, there were involuntary revivals. So shamanism in Mongolia is not voluntary. You don't decide to become a shaman. It is usually actually an extraordinarily painful process whereby the spirits choose you. Um, and people go into trance and during this trance, they do activities that they maybe have little to no memory of. Uh, so this is very much what we could call an involuntary thing. So to have a sudden explosion in the number of shamans, which is exactly what happened in Mongolia. It went from, I think, four in 1994 to well over a thousand now in just Ulaanbaatar, just wow. in the capital. Um, but it's an involuntary tradition that's very, very interesting when we're dealing with trance, when we're dealing with involuntary or semi-involuntary practices. And in Tibet, we saw the same thing happening. So one of the most fascinating things to me in the Gesar traditions, first of all, just, you know, the Gesar epic is the world's longest epic poem. It makes the Mahabharata look absolutely tiny by comparison. Um, and there are people who've memorized the whole thing. And these people fall into a couple of categories. There are people who memorize it through listening and through study. And even that is considered pretty close to miraculous considering how long this text is and they know it word for word. But there are also people who are known as bab jong. And jong means epic or story. And bab means to fall, like as in rainfall. And so bab jong means that the spirit falls into them and the epic falls into them. And these people go into semi-trance and just start reciting. And many of them are completely illiterate nomads. One of the Babjong I know, he cannot write his own name. So when I say illiterate, we're not talking to someone who's not good at reading. I mean illiterate, he cannot write his own name. But 
when he starts reciting, he will not stutter, he will not repeat, he will not make a mistake. And he can go for hours. And you can't choose to be a babjong. Babjong, usually what happens is they'll have a dream or a vision, usually, and this is why it's more common for nomads, is it usually happens when they're taking the afternoon nap, you know, the yaks and the sheep are grazing. So it's a perfect time to take a nap at the base of a sacred mountain. And then they'll have a dream or a vision there. And then when they wake up, they're suddenly able to perform this miraculous activity. So again, this is an involuntary thing, but the number of bhaktas has absolutely exploded. Um, I believe there are 16 recognized bhaktas just in the city of Yushu alone. And Yushu is not a very big city. Um, I personally know three bhaktas. Like that's, that's a ton for one person to know. So in both of these cases, what I find most interesting is the revival of these involuntary traditions. And like I said, this is a microcosm. We've seen the same thing with Korean shamanism, certain forms of Nepali shamanism, Nepali spirituality after the civil war, Korean shamanism after the dictatorship period. So clearly, um, there's something happening and we can look at this from two angles. If we look at it from the spiritual angle, it is that the spirits want to revive this. They want this back, which makes sense. Um, if we look at it from a social angle um, and an anthropological angle, people have a very deep seated need for this to come back. And that can also manifest in this manner. And of course, whether you believe it's the spiritual side or the anthropological side, that's up to the personal belief. You know, I, I can't say what's right or wrong. But to me, that parallel was the most interesting of all of the parallels I saw. That's fascinating. You remind me somewhat of the way the Vedic scriptures are transmitted orally with certain children being trained very, very young in yes. rote, rote memorization before they actually understand what they're memorizing. And that's been shown that it preserves the integrity of the memorization because there are less of one's own associations entangled with what one's memorizing. So that's one of the explanations offered for why the Vedic oral tradition has retained its integrity. So why it's so pure, it's yeah. More, uh, yeah, compared to other oral traditions, which which have a lot more drift. But I understand there's a lot of variation in the Gesar, uh, the Gesar Ling tales. Are these Babdrung, how are they acquiring the tales? How are they acquiring the information? Is it recited exactly the same way every time? Is there variation? Are they going through key plot points? Uh, how, how are they acquiring all this all, all this information to come well, out it in depends. this state? And uh, so it, it absolutely depends. Um, one I know is actually what's called a tajung. He looks in a mirror and he gazes in the mirror and he sees it and he recites it. Others just kind of go into this trance state and they say the spirits come into them. So essentially it's a partial possession and they recite in that state. Um, there was a case of one who used to look at a blank sheet of paper and he'd read from the blank sheet of paper and you'd watch him reading from this sheet of paper um, because the words would appear in front of him. Um, and they do a combination of what we could call sort of established dung. So for example, the horse race, and that is established. Um, but then they'll also receive some, and these are viewed very similarly to Terma's uh, revealed treasures in the Tibetan tradition, um, where they will add new volumes to the Gesar epic. So these cannot be confirmed, so to speak, uh, because there's nothing to compare them to, but they are viewed as, as canonical. Wow. 
Sometimes authorship in old texts, particularly, for instance, when one's trying to ascertain authorship or which parts maybe in a text were added later by different authors and so on, there are certain stylistic or linguistic signposts, uh, telltale uh, markers that we can say, oh, this looks like it's written by this person or this, oh, no, this is different. It looks like it's added and so on. I'm curious, these additional chapters that are, are they in a particular literary style that's consonant with the rest of the Gessarling material in that area or is it colloquial or, or some or some combination it is in a style that is uh consistent with the Gessar style Gessar has its own style which is very much a mix of colloquial and literary um but it's also very rhythmic so you know it's it's like for example how Shakespeare writes almost everything in iambic pentameter um so it would be very difficult to pinpoint something written by a specific Babjong because the recitation, and this is part of the test of if a person is a real Babjong or a fake, is, is what they're reciting consistent? Is it consistent with the Gessar epic and the way the Gessar epic is written? Stylistically. Uh, stylistically, linguistically, because anyone can make something up to a rhythm. Um, so this is actually one of the tests, is exactly the question you bring up. So no, you probably wouldn't be able to identify, uh, probably I say, as I'm beginning the PhD, but haven't gone through it yet, probably would not be able to identify a Bob Jung by style. Mm, that's interesting. And is there a context in which these Bob Jung could have ingested this style and ingested the material? Is it, is it, widely, is it a widely told tale in those, in those areas? It is widely told and widely enjoyed. I don't know in the case of these Bob Jones if there's ways, especially considering how young they are when most of them start doing this, that they would have absorbed it. There could be. I can't answer that in a solid way. Yeah, I mean, I say that not to invalidate the- uh, No, not at all, not at all. Interpretation of what's going on. I'm just also curious as to any other contributing factors. Uh, no, I completely agree that that is a very possible and likely contributing factor. I just can't confirm it. So mm. I don't want to, especially as someone who's approaching this academically, I don't want to say something that I then have to, you know, backtrack on when people are like, well, I cited you from this video. Oh, yes. Well, quite. <laughs> well, it's something else that's very fascinating about the Gessar um, revival uh, that you mentioned in, in our correspondence before this interview was some of the popular culture outcrops or uh, manifestations of this uh, hip hop and restaurants and cabarets you, you listed. Could you tell us a little bit about that aspect of the Gessar revival? Well, this is what I'm looking at for my PhD, uh, very much so, is how Gessar is kind of this ongoing mode of reality in people's lives to the point that there are a lot of young people, uh, people our age and younger, who view themselves actively as um, subjects of Gessar as, an, as a living king. Um, and so in addition to sort of the traditional stuff, the, the epic, the this, the that, you do get a lot of social and pop cultural things. So one of the most popular Tibetan restaurants in Xining right now is the Ling Gesa restaurant. It's run by an extremely popular singer named Asam. He's one of the superstars. And every evening they put on like a 20 minute miniature Gesa opera, essentially. 
before the other singers come on to do their thing of pop music and whatnot. And it is a place where a lot of singers get their start. You know, a lot of the new pop singers got their start at this restaurant. And the restaurant is covered in images of Gessar. Like there's uh, the masks of the 30 heroes as we come in. There's Gessar statues everywhere. And they put on this Gessar opera. One of the most popular hip hop songs in 2017 was called Ala Lamo. And uh, when you recite the Gessar epic, anytime you reach an aria, or a monologue essentially by one of the characters. It starts with Lu Alalamo Alalin, Lu Talalamo Talalin. And so this song had as its chorus Lu Alalamo Alalamo Alalin, but a hip hop song. And it was a clear guesser reference to anybody who heard it. Um, so yeah, people, this is just an ongoing thing in their lives to a point that it is something that is in pop culture. I passed. I passed the Gessar grocery store. Um, <laughs> the Gessar Palace Hotel is the largest and most successful hotel in Yushu in Kham. Um, and actually the owner, the owner, wow, I just said owner, the owner, because I do speak English. Uh, the owner comes from Nangchen, uh, very near to Tanagomba, which is uh, a, a Gessar monastery that I'm sure we're going to talk about later. But he actually gave the top floor of the hotel to the lamas from Tana Monastery as a Gessar shrine. And so other than a few offices on the 11th floor, the 11th floor is this gigantic shrine room plus uh, boarding area for the lamas, private rooms, bathroom, kitchen for the lamas who are sponsored to live there full time. And it's this massive temple because it, it takes up the entire top floor of a hotel um, where they're expected to do Gessar rituals every day. There's 108 Gessar statues in there. And he just gave this top floor that could have been more rooms or whatever. He's also sponsoring, and he's a young man. He's in his late thirties, I'd say. Uh, He's also sponsoring um, a hand calligraphed rewriting of the Gessar primary text, what they're called the Serbum, the Nurbum, and the Dungbum, um, all being hand calligraphed in precious materials. So like painted in gold, for example, um, which is a massive project. And, you know, as a businessman, this, this is a bit of a cash sink for him, but he does this out of devotion and this because Gessar is ongoing and active. Uh, this isn't that different from say certain evangelical Christian groups who view that Jesus could be coming tomorrow. So we're ready, we're ready for him today. There's a very similar view among a lot of these Gessar devotees that, you know, Gessar is coming back anytime now from whatever mission he's on. And so we're ready. Hmm. And it's yeah. fascinating to see that and beautiful. Yeah, that is fascinating. Gessar, of course, famously didn't die, but ascended, sort of ascended into the heavens kind of thing and kind of come back any time to put the world to rights and so on. And of course, there's different views on what is meant by coming back. Does it mean an actual physical return? Does it mean a return of the Gessar mindset in the same way that there's a Buddha nature? Is there what we could consider a Gessar nature? People have different interpretations of this. Um, most of the people I encountered in this part of Kham who believe in it have a more literal interpretation of an actual return. But, you know, just like any good old religious movement, it has a thousand interpretations. Mm. Are there signs that they're waiting for, as often there are in such movements, signs of his return or his impending return? 
I should ask. That's a great question. I'm going to ask them that. Thank you for giving me a question for my next interview. <laughs> I'm writing this down. Honest to God, I'm writing this down. Thank you so much. You can keep talking to me, but I'm writing this. That's why I'm looking down from the screen. Such a good question. I love it. So you mentioned there this flavor of Gessar. So I'm curious maybe if you could say a little bit about who Gessar was and what's the significance of a story in terms of Tibetan and Central Asian culture. You know, what is the identity associated with, with the followers of Gessar? Well, this is, first of all, I should note, this is a cultural treasure in several cultures, including in Mongolia, Buryatia. Um, I primarily work with the Eastern Tibetan version which I do try to bounce off of these to try and find if there's one agreed upon thread that goes throughout, because I'm very interested to find out if we can find um, incontrovertible historical evidence of the existence of Gassar, which is quite debated. But the reason I bring this up is because the things I say are bound to be fought by people who say, well, no, he was actually born here. Um, so this is my disclaimer on that. However, the general consensus is that Gessar lived about 900 years ago. He was born most likely in the Dege region of Eastern Tibet. Of course, there are Mongolians who will say he was born in Mongolia. There are Tibetans from Golok who will say he was born in Golok. This is widely, this is the wide general agreement, um, but it is not 100%. And essentially, we have the story of his life where um, his mother was the consort of a king, but not the wife of the king. And the jealous wife sent the mother out into a really terrible nomadic area where she gave birth to the young Gessar. And um, they lived there in this kind of exile for a while until he was spiritually called to retake the kingdom of Ling because his stepfather presumably the actual king had disappeared um, on some sort of political mission and his uncle who was not a good king had taken over the throne of Ling so uh, a horse race was arranged um, young Gessar who was then called Joru won the horse race took the kingdom took the hand of Singjongjukmo who became his wife um, and from there he went on to conduct several other conquests from a Buddhist standpoint, it's viewed that he's a bodhisattva who came to the world because there were demons who were trying to destroy the world and destroy the Dharma, and that his conquests were actually destroying manifestations of these demons. And in a lot of these conquests, we do see very evil kings who are hoarding um, medicines during times of pandemic. Uh, and refusing to give them to the people. So Gessar not only kills the kings, but then takes the medicines and distributes them, um, which is why you know a lot of the lamas are saying, oh, it's really good for you to do Gessar mantras right now because we have a pandemic. Um, and of course, versions of this change. So in Buryatia, he has much more of a shamanic aspect to him. Uh, in uh, Balti, in Gil uh, Gilgit Balti, he... Uh, has a bit of an Islamic leaning, although they recognize that these stories are pre-Islamic. Um, but in general, that's kind of the base idea of who Gessar was. And there's a lot of questions as to, was he a historical figure? Was he a mythological figure? Or was he somewhere in the middle where, yes, King Gessar existed, but maybe he didn't actually transform himself into a crow and fly to his uncle's home. <laughs> 
you know? Um, and that's part of what I'm interested in is finding out if there's, uh, there's evidence. I can say there's evidence that points to him having been a historical figure, but we don't have a smoking gun right now. And I'm really hoping that we might be able to find a smoking gun that says, yes, there, there was a King Gessar at this time who did these conquests. Obviously, we will never be able to prove whether or not the miraculous activities happened. That's the nature of miraculous activities. But I would love it if we were able to really say, yep, we have confirmation that approximately 900 years ago, this person lived. Mm. And famously, I thought, maybe I'm wrong, a divine birth too. Yes. Supernatural birth. Yes. Um, famously, he had a divine birth where um, he was essentially born as a, not as an infant, but as a child. And yeah, there's, it's a whole thing. There's an entire volume of the epic just about his birth. <laughs> Do you have an opinion about the origin of the name Gesar? It's very fascinating. Some scholars suggest it's a, it's a derivation of Caesar coming through uh, the Turkish, some people say it's a compound of uh, Gippa and Sarpo or something like that. Do you have uh, um, an opinion about that? I do not think it is related to Caesar. Um, I actually have, uh, unfortunately, not within hand's reach of me, a Ladakhi version of the epic, which is a very early printing, which actually spells his name differently. Um, and there's some who spell it Kesar which would mean like new birth, for example. But there's also Gesar is the piston of a flower and Gesar is viewed as the emanation of Padmasambhava. So who is the lotus born. So to be the piston of the lotus, for example, is one theory with Padmasambhava is the lotus and Gesar as the emanation is the piston. Um, but I don't think that there's really good evidence when we look at the fact that there have been so many other spellings of Gesar that we can kind of trace. I don't think it's related to Caesar. And these days, a lot more scholars are kind of moving away from the Caesar thing and towards Gesar as piston or an adaptation of Kesar or the compound name. You mentioned then that your main practice is the Gesar practice. Yeah. Maybe you could explain a little bit about what a Gesar practice is, what forms it takes, uh, both personally in terms of your own practice and, and generally how it's done. Well, for that, I'd really love to take a segue into talking about Tana Monastery, if I may. Yeah. Um, so Tana Monastery is located in Kham in Nangchen, and it is the last remaining monastery of the Yelpokogyu School. Most people haven't even heard of the Yelpokogyu School. The Yelpokogyu School is a combined school that combines both Kagyu and Yingma. Um, and there used to be more monasteries. Unfortunately, Tana is now the last one. It essentially survived because previous Karmapa is being much more influential, the Karmakagi school being very influential when there were pressures to destroy some of the smaller schools as we've always seen in any religious society. They basically put their arm over Yelpokagi's shoulders and were like, if you mess with my brother, you're messing with me. Um, which is what allowed Yelpokagi to continue and survive. But it makes it a very interesting school because it has both Dzogchen views and Mahamudra views, which come from these two very different sides of things. Um, Thana Monastery is also interesting because it is seen as the patron monastery of the Kingdom of Ling. Uh, that the soldiers of Ling in the time of Gesar would have been patrons of this monastery. They would have been devotees of Thana Monastery. Um, they argue even that Gesar's Tawi Lama was a Nakba, which is a a uh, non-monastic practitioner, 
but who is still ordained in certain ways of the Tantras. And uh, they say that Gesar's Tawilama was actually a Nakba who was the head of Tana Monastery. And so Tana Monastery holds several of the Gesar practices. Um, there are different Gesar practices that come from different groups, but uh, Tana Monastery holds one of the main ones. Um, and this is, of course, a little bit scary because they are the last Yelpakagyu monastery. They are that last stronghold. Uh, they are a very isolated monastery. You have to drive from about four hours from Yushu, which is where the nearest airport is, to Nangchen, and then another five or six hours up into the mountains, including some extremely treacherous roads that you can't do if the weather's bad at all. And then once you get there, there are still some places that you can't get to unless you're very, very good at riding horses. Um, and so obviously many of the Tana texts have never been catalog cataloged, so they solely exist as the woodblock prints. We are trying to catalog them. We are actively trying to translate them. This is what I do in my non-existent free time. Um, and I have been very lucky in that it has been these lamas who have introduced me to the Gesar practice that I do. Um, so a bit of a brief introduction to Gesar practices in general. According to these viewpoints, Gesar is an enlightened deity and therefore can be used as a yidam, a meditational central deity. Just like you could use Chenrezi, Avalokiteshvara, Tara, any of these other deities that are more common. Uh, since Gesar is an emanation of Padmasambhava, uh, it's no different than having Padmasambhava as your uh, yidam. Right. Um, and so all of the practices stem from that. That is what they are all based on. And there are numerous different practices. So one of the ones that I love that I don't do is the Lingjo Bechen Romo or the Tantric dances of Gesar. And these are actually very similar to Cham, the mass dances that the monks do, except for the fact that these are done by lay people. Uh, one of the big things with Gesar practices is they're very much they can be done by monastics, but they're very much aimed at householders because Gesar was a householder, his wife was a householder, almost everyone in his in his inner circle were householders. Um, so these are very much aimed at as the householder's route to enlightenment. So the Lingda Dutch and Romo is available for that. Um, and then if you look at the actual texts, what you have is a fairly standard set of practices, except for the fact that the central deity is Gesar instead of being Tenrezi instead of being Tara, uh, but you have, um, you know, you're still expected to complete Ngondro, and then after Ngondro, you're still expected to do a certain number of Gesar mantras, and then there's the Gesar Guru Yoga that you're supposed to meditate on, and Gesar offerings, and Gesar smoke offerings, and Torma offerings, and Serkim offerings, and meditational practices. So essentially, um, it is a complete system based on a combination of Dzogchen and Mahamudra, for which one can use this deity as their central deity for practices towards enlightenment. Gosh, is it structured more in the Kagyu sense or in the Nyingma sense in terms of the, the division of the Yanas? And also to what extent the practices are reskin Pambasambhava practices or do they have essential or unique uh, Gesarling elements? It is slightly more Kagyu than Yingma in terms of structure, because the Elpa Kagyu is structurally Kagyu uh, and philosophically very much a mix. So the structural element is much more Kagyu structure, um, which I love because I kind of need that more structured system personally. It won't work for everyone, but for me, it's really nice. 
Um, and as for if it's more similar to Padmasambhava practices, um, I haven't gone into as much depth in Padmasambhava practices just because they aren't my practice. But as far as I can tell, this is its own unique Yidam practice. Um, it does reference Padmasambhava, so you actually start with the seven line prayer, but uh, it is very standard on what you see for different Yidam practices as being that Yidam specific practice. So I do believe it is very much an independent practice based on what I've seen and based on what I understand. With the understanding that, of course, that my knowledge of Padmasambhava practice is fairly limited because I do not necessarily have all the levels of initiation to read all those texts. Right, yeah. Does the Yidam practice have all four classes of Tantra? Uh, yes, it has. It's the whole thing including yeah. completion stage practices, et cetera? As far as I know, yes. Uh, one of the things that makes this a little bit difficult is because since I'm working with this monastery in Tibet, I'm learning this in a very, very, very traditional way. And um, in the West, we generally want to have a framework of what we're going to be learning. And then we take our steps. This is why at the beginning of a college course, we always get a syllabus, right? In Tibet, that's not how things work at all. Um, they tell you step number one, maybe you have an idea of step number two. You have no idea what step number three is. The idea is why should you even bother knowing about step number three until you've gotten really good at step number one. So um, I'm actually fairly closed off from the full framework just because I'm learning this in this extremely traditional setting. Um, so if we were learning it in the West, which these practices have been adapted for Westerners, even though they're the same practice, the practice you do is, is the same, but the system of teaching has been adapted for Westerners. So if you were to be learning another Yidam's practice, they would tell you, you know, that there are completion stage practices that you'll get to eventually, but right now we're working on this. When you learn it in the Tibetan setting, they basically go, why are you even asking that question? Get this done first. Um, so I am, based on my work with the text that I'm helping them translate, I am fairly certain that yes, there are all of those. I am pretty like 99% sure. I'm not 100% sure largely because we're doing this the traditional way where they're like, don't even look at step two until you finish step one. We're not even going to tell you what step three is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Are you the first academic to look at these practices in detail? Are there any academic reports or reviews of the practice system itself? Um, there are definitely a few academic works on the practice system. I don't think that they've gone quite as in depth because these texts, a lot of them have never been seen outside of the monastery before. Wow, it's very exciting for you. It is so exciting and so terrifying because my reading and writing is not as good as it should be. Uh, I basically had to stop formal Tibetan study after the University of Virginia program. And so as a result, my speaking is great because you can always talk to people and my reading and writing isn't as great. But for some reason, these llamas have just decided that I'm their girl. Um, I joke that I'm the mascot of Tana Monastery. And, um, and so they're just dumping these texts on me and being like, translate this. And I'm sitting there going, you know, I'm completely unqualified, right? Um, which has been hilarious because uh, like there was this expo that they did and and for 16 days I was working with them on this expo and so I'd look and I'd hit a part of a sentence that I did not understand and I'd go to them they'd try to explain it to me and I still wouldn't understand it and then it would turn into them doing charades so they'd be like okay I'm and Lama Zopa is going to be uh, this Brahmin that he was talking with and scene <laughs> 
acted out in front of me to try and help me understand the text, which was hilarious. And it helped. And my reading is getting a lot better, but it is, it is both amazing and extraordinarily intimidating. Mm, fabulous. Oh, you have a Gessarling Facebook group. Uh, yeah, that you invited just created me. it. Yeah, it's so interesting. And you invited me into that group uh, to help help me with my pre preparation for this interview yeah. very kindly. And just because it's cool. Well, in addition, I was about to say, and it's also so cool. And there's a video, I think it's in there, where you actually, a 20 minute video or so, where you take a tour through probably that exhibition yeah. and you show all these fabulous artifacts that are there. And I know... Um, you have an interest in those artifacts anyway, in artifacts of uh, Tibet and Nepal and the Himalayan regions. Can you say a little bit about the artifacts that are there at Tana Monastery? Oh, this was one of the best experiences of my life and happened to me just by accident or by karma. Um, so Tana Monastery, the satellite monastery, always has one or two artifacts that allegedly belong to King Gesar and his retinue. And... Um, I knew that Tana Monastery had many of the artifacts. The artifacts are essentially split between Ryuche Monastery, Tana Monastery, and a few in Golok. And um, so one day I was just at a coffee shop with a friend and I got a call from one of the lamas at the satellite temple saying, oh, you know, uh, we got some artifacts from Tana. You should totally come over and see them. And I thought that instead of having two or three artifacts, they'd have five or six artifacts. So I said, sure, I'll be over in a few minutes. Finished my coffee, no rush. Went over to discover that they actually had four gigantic safes full of artifacts that they had brought over from Tana Monastery and had never been shown to the public before. And they wanted to create an expo in part to petition the local government for permission to create a climate controlled museum area in the monastery so that they can, instead of having these in a storeroom, actually show them so pilgrims can see them, scholars can see them. And so for 16 days, I ended up working with them on this expo and it was absolutely amazing. There were helmets, mirrors, armor, weaponry, ancient texts, the white hats that Gessar wears. Whenever you see Gessar as Dorje Tegel in one of the Tankas, he's wearing this white felt hat, the original white hat. Tibetan felt lasts forever. This is a known thing. It is no longer white and it now has holes in it, but it's the same hat. And that hat was so cool because it is still in good enough condition that we called traditional felt making tailors who were able to analyze it, figure out exactly what kind of felt it was. And then they created about 50 perfect replicas of what the hat would have looked like when it was new using the exact same materials, the exact same stitching style. So I have one of those hats, uh, which is the coolest souvenir I could ever ask for. Um, and uh, Tonka's items that belong to Marpa. And they also have the history of how they received those donations. So uh, I helped them translate the names of it and then translate these documents on the history of the receipt of donations because monasteries just like any organization had to have so-and-so made the following donation and we wrote a receipt and those are the most boring documents in general but they are the most telling documents because you know that's where we learn who this person was who donated it what their relationship was to the kingdom of ling does this provide evidence for the existence of king gesar does this show that these objects are as old as they are and one of the amazing but very emotional moments was these lamas believe in their heart that these are the original artifacts and are also very scared to find out that they might not be 
but the quest for truth is important enough for them that they went to me and they said, we know you're an academic. We know you have experience with antiques and art history. We believe this object is X number of years old. Is it really? And that is such a question to ask because it's giving permission to have your faith completely shattered. And it was my great pleasure to look at them and go, I can't tell you whether or not this belonged to Gesser, but I can tell you that based on this artistic style, it falls in a window of 800 to 1000 years ago. And Gesser lived 900 years ago. So yes, it is within the proper window. It is the age you think it is. I can't tell you who it belonged to, but I can tell you it's the right age. And that was an amazing moment for them because they were, they were really nervous to ask that. I remember one thing, they had been told that the bow they had that allegedly belonged to Gessar was fake. They had been absolutely told it was fake um, because it was too small. Um, the bow was maybe a little bit more than a meter. And so they were absolutely ready for me to just tear down any last hope that they had. And to me, it is just such a statement of how much truth matters to them that they were willing to ask that question. It is so much easier to refuse to ask that question and just stick with your faith than to say, I'm willing to let my faith be shattered by asking this question. And they showed me the bows and they said, we've been told these are fake because of the size. And I just started laughing because I'm an archer. And I said, no, these are perfect. If you had a standing bowman, you would need a longer bow meter and a half minimum. But a riding bowman needs a shorter bow so that he can shoot, bring his bow across the horse's neck without smacking his horse in the neck and shoot again, which is why Mongolian riding bows are very, very short, even today, while Mongolian standing bows are very, very long even today. And we see this throughout all different societies. So I'm looking at them going, no, this bow is the absolute perfect size for someone who would have been shooting from horseback. And so that was just this beautiful moment to get to talk to them about that and, and to get to help confirm some of what their oral knowledge and writings at the monastery had said was true, but they were you know, very afraid to ask this question, but really wanted to know. And it was such an amazing experience. It was very emotional as well, because after so many years of studying Gessar without resources, it is so hard to get these resources if you are not in, not just Tibet, but specifically Eastern Tibet itself. It is so hard to get resources. And then to suddenly have King Gessar's bow in my hands, to suddenly have Queen St. Jemjumbo's jewelry in my hands, I cried. And then I also had a little bit of a, breakdown because I realized that I wasn't wearing curator's gloves. Hmm, that was going to be my next question. So <laughs> that's awful. So for the record, you were able to confirm in your view that they could be. Yes. But not necessarily that they absolutely are. No, because, um, you know, it's very, very difficult to prove ownership. It's very, it's very easy to prove age. So I definitely was able to confirm with very strong certainty that these are the right type and the right time to be what they are. There is nothing, there is nothing to lead me to believe that these are not the objects they say they are. I don't have proof to 100% confirm that they are, but there's nothing to contradict. 
-hmm. which is so exciting. And then I am working with them to try and find evidence that might be that smoking gun. Um, And hopefully someday we'll be able to do an interview where you're like, oh, how were you able to prove that King Gethsar of Ling was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, well, this was my amazing academic moment. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that that'll be our next interview. That's the dream. I would say, Dr. Rubin, can you share with us your groundbreaking research? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, you actually, of course, now we're in the pandemic, and I imagine that somewhat stymies your research possibilities. Could you tell us a bit about how it was you came to begin your PhD and what the effect of the pandemic has had on your uh, studies? Um, I hope my supervisor doesn't kill me for telling this story, but it's worth it. Um, I had no intention of doing a PhD at all. Um, I loved my master's. I loved the university I did it in. However, I have a lot of critiques of academia. I'm not the only person to have a lot of critiques of academia. And I especially have these critiques as a woman, as a Jewish woman, um, as a woman who does Asian studies, but works very closely with people in Asian societies. Uh, I have come to see academia as extremely sexist and generally extremely racist. And in a lot of ways, having sort of almost a neo-colonialist aspect to it. And this is very uncomfortable for someone like me. So I knew I wasn't going to do a PhD. Plus, I have no intention of being a professor. So for me, it doesn't make sense to do a PhD, right? You know, if you're going to be a professor, totally do a PhD. You have my support 100%. So I was working on this, uh, this expo project in Tibet, basically camping out on the top floor of this hotel with the llamas. It was amazing. Um, I just got a room one floor down and would just come up the stairs every day and working on translation and being very frustrated by it. When this American guy comes in and he's speaking fluent Tibetan with an Amdo accent, mind you, but I don't hold that against him. And <laughs> I love Amdo, don't get me wrong. I had to throw in the joke though. Uh, and I'm struggling with something that I'm reading. So you know how it is when, when nerds get into the nerd zone, there is only the nerd zone. So I just come up to this guy. I'm like, you, you speak Tibetan. Can you read Tibetan? And he kind of looks at me with a little bit of fear in his eyes and goes, I can read. Okay. And I said, I don't need, okay. I need good. And I went back into my corner in hindsight, very rude. And the llamas were like, Oh, that's Amalia. She's nice. She doesn't bite as long as we give her coffee. Like, you know, and um, a little bit later, you know, the llamas were like, no, you really need to meet her because she does guess our studies. And I ended up talking to this person who it turns out was a professor at the University of Leeds. And after talking for a bit, he said, you know, if you ever want to do a PhD, and I said, let me stop you right there. Oh, hell no. And he asked me why. And I explained, I'm sick of the sexism. I'm sick of the racism. And I'm sick of the fact that I sit in the classroom for an entire semester with a teacher who doesn't know anything about my specific topic because my topic is really obscure and I could learn more in two days right here than I would learn in an entire semester in a classroom. And he looked at me and went, ah, so in the UK, unlike in the United States, we have a thing called a research degree, which has no classroom time. I went, okay, all right, you now have my interest peaked. And he explained that, um, in the UK, there's, you know, these programs where basically it's viewed that if you have a master's degree, especially, uh, there's not necessarily a need for you to do more classroom time if you're very research-based. So instead to do a 100% research-based degree. 
And that was my dream come true. So I, after what could be defined as an inauspicious start to my relationship with my supervisor, uh, <laughs> uh, he absolutely got me on board. I applied, I got in, um, and I began my PhD in November of 2019. Went to the UK for the first time in my life, went to Leeds absolutely sight unseen. I'd never done this before. It looked great. And I was planning a trip to Tibet in uh, December of that year anyway. So it just seemed like it wouldn't necessarily be able to be a formal research trip, but any info I collected while I was there was still usable. And uh, so I went to Tibet and I had plans to go with the Lamas. We were going to drive to Gesser's birthplace uh, with these Lamas from Tana. It was going to be a road trip. It was going to be amazing. And then on New Year's Eve, I was buying an adapter for my laptop because I didn't have the right wall plug when I slipped on some ice and broke my leg in three places. Um, 13,000 foot altitude in a town with almost no English speakers. And I have just had a medical emergency. Fortunately, and this is the reason why I love Yushu with my whole heart, the community there is better, is just, the best in the world. They got me to the hospital, friends showed up. Um, one of the few people who does speak fluent English took the afternoon off of work to show up at the hospital to interpret for me. Uh, the doctors were mostly Tibetans and the one Chinese doctor was actually surprisingly so respectful. He said, I understand that your Tibetan is better than your Chinese. I'm gonna speak to you in Chinese, but if you don't understand anything, Dr. Pasang can translate for you. It was just super respectful. The doctors came to my hotel room uh, so that I didn't have to do IV treatments in the hospital. Um, they even brought Tibetan medicine as well. Um, a friend who's from Nangchen, which is four hours away, called his cousin and told his cousin to come to Yushu and get the room next to me in the hotel so that if I needed anything, I could just bang on the wall. And that friend stayed there for like four nights. The Lamas from Tana took shifts in my room, hanging out, keeping me company, reciting prayers. When we had to do extremely painful medical procedures, they would just be like, okay, we're gonna do 21 Taras. Look me in the eye. Don't look at the doctor. We're just gonna do this. Um, and then I had to be evacuated because uh, you can't do anesthesia while you're acclimatizing to altitude because anesthesia is based on oxygen intake. So we could not do any medical procedure while I was there. We could only do stabilizing. So that forced me to very unexpectedly come to the United States in January. And then in late March, just as my leg was getting better and I was being told, okay, you'll probably be able to go back to Nepal soon. My family got COVID. All of us got COVID. And so now I've been stuck in the United States since then. Obviously, since I was expecting to be in the States for two to three months, I brought a few books with me, but I didn't bring my hard drives with me. I didn't bring all of my books with me. So unfortunately, I've been, leave on my, I've been on leave of my PhD for months now because there's not all that much I can do. I'm lucky that the Lamas from Tana have been sending me texts to keep me busy, but there's really not much I can be doing, which is very disappointing. And it's also, you know, very hard to be so far away from these friends in Yushu who are like, okay, well, you're fine now. Can you come back? I'm like, no, I can't. Uh, there's a global pandemic. They're like, yeah, we know about that. Please come back anyway. Um, so it's been rough, but I'm just trying to make the best of it because what else is there to do? Josh, how was your recovery from COVID? Uh, it was very rough. My dad almost died. 
Um, my mom was fortunately asymptomatic. I was in the middle, fairly severe. And unfortunately, um, COVID does have a lot of um, post-COVID issues. So for example, my dad weirdly hallucinates smells all the time now, and I've had a few nerve-related issues, but I'm lucky I'm working with uh, an excellent hospital in New York City that has a research program for post-COVID uh, where they're trying to understand it better so that we can provide better treatment for um, people who get COVID in the future. So I'm working with them. And um, in addition to getting care, it also means they have more data. So that's, that's kind of exciting actually. I'm glad you've recovered. Happy to hear you've recovered well. Me too. <laughs> okay, well, as we come, I think, perhaps towards the end of our conversation, it's so fascinating. Something else which I'd be remiss not to ask you about is your career in singing, yeah. which, uh, yeah, which you're known for. And can you tell us a little bit about your singing? Well, it def weird is definitely a good thing to mention because one of the things that comes up occasionally is people will try to look me up from an academic perspective, like to try, my try and find my thesis online. And then they're like, we found a video instead of you apparently singing on Mongolian television. Like, are you actually an academic? I'm like, yes, but I'm a singer. So I've been singing since I was very young. My dad is a folk musician. He's played a lot. He's actually played in some international competitions, made it into the finals a couple of times. Very, very talented. Um, so I got into singing at a very young age. And this is part of how I connect with people. So when I go to different countries, I learn how to sing in those languages as part of a way to connect with people. And I love it. Um, so when I was first learning Tibetan, I was really bad at reading. And a friend of mine gave me, back then it was VCDs, VCDs were the thing, um, of Tibetan pop songs that had the lyrics written at the bottom. And he said, you have to read along with it. And my reading didn't improve that much, but I learned how to sing all of the songs like every single one. And then I picked up the Tibetan lute, the Dunyan, and um, accidentally achieved Tibetan pop stardom, which was really weird. Like the first time I went to Tibet, I met Kinga, who's one of the most famous singers and who I'd had a crush on since I was a teenager. And he was like, hey, would you open for me at this concert in Nakchu? And I nearly fainted. And then he asked if he could do a cover of one of my songs, which ended up becoming a hugely popular song in Tibet. And I could go, I wrote that, I wrote that, um, which is super weird, very surreal. Um, and it's just what I love. I love singing in Tibetan. I love composing in Tibetan because the Tibetan poetic style is very different from the English poetic style. In my opinion, it's much more free. The use of metaphors is really interesting. So I got into that. And since this is just what I do, like I've always sung in Yiddish and stuff like that. When I went to Mongolia, I learned to sing a bit of Mongolian and my Mongolian friends were like, you have to try out for Universe Best Songs, which is basically Mongolia's Got Talent. And so I tried out and I got on. And but eventually about halfway through the competition, I realized I didn't actually want to complete the competition. I couldn't accept the prize if I got it. And um, why not? So, uh, because it involved like a scholarship for a music program in Russia, I think was the prize that year. So I wouldn't have been able to accept the prize if I got it. And it was taking up too much of my time. And while I really enjoyed it, it just, it wasn't worth it for me to take the place of another competitor. So I decided, if I'm going out, I'm going out on my own terms. So in the first round, I sang in Mongolian. In the second round, I sang in Tibetan. And in the third round, when I decided I was kind of done with things, I got a Mongolian ensemble to learn how to play a traditional klezmer piece called the Rebieli Mela <laughs> with the Morinhor and all the traditional instruments. And I sang in Yiddish on Mongolian television and got disqualified. 
<laughs> which was like the best moment ever. I am a hundred percent on board with that. Um, they later realized that the disqualification was a mistake and I shouldn't have been disqualified, but it doesn't matter because I didn't actually want to be in it at that point, but they invited me to sing in the final anyway, because they, they still liked my stuff. So I got to sing at the final, even though I wasn't a competitor. And I sang um, a Yiddish jazz song called By Mirbis to Shane, uh, which is traditionally sung in Yiddish and English, but I sang it in Yiddish and Mongolian, uh, again, on live national television. <laughs> and it was an absolute blast, but it's a bit weird now being an academic because people will be like, oh, just look up Amalia Rubin. She's a scholar on shamanism or she's the scholar on Gessar or she's the person you want to cite on this issue. And they're like, she's a singer. Um, but the weirdest thing that happened from it by far was my mom was sharing the video of me singing to Rebbe Elimelech. And um, it ended up being seen by Blues Hall of Famer, Joe Lewis Walker, who from this weird video of me singing in Yiddish on Mongolian television decided that I should be doing blues. And so now I'm on his CD and I've sung at the Moustique Blues Festival twice. It's very surreal, but I absolutely love it. Um, and again, it does make it a bit weird as an academic when people are like, wait, are you a professional singer or are you an academic? I'm like, I'm both. There are many strings to your horse bow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like to make it as confusing as possible. I, I feel that my job in life is to make everyone else's life a little bit more surreal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Amalia, it's been a very fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.